Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 47. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, it's my pleasure to take us through Acts chapter 2, the last part of that this morning. And we're going to be looking at community. Community is a funny thing. It's something that we all want, but we want it on our terms. On the one hand, uh, we have crippling levels of loneliness. Even though we're the most connected generation that has ever lived, the statistics are that young people in particular are chronically lonely. Even though they've grown up with more access to communication and expression than ever before. So we have crippling levels of loneliness. And on the other hand, we spurn authority. We are scared to be vulnerable. We don't want to sacrifice our freedom to others. We're a generation of consumers, unwilling to settle in case there's a better option elsewhere. We don't want to commit. But we have an ache for relationship nevertheless. We live in a time where we say, I don't need a piece of paper to show you that I love you. Perhaps what we mean is, I don't love you enough to close off my options. I wonder, is this our attitude to commitment? How do we approach church then? Is it, I'm here until something better comes along or until it stops meeting my needs? I wonder. Tim Keller said it like this. Everyone says they want community and friendship, but mention accountability or commitment to people and they run the other way. Well, we see the seeds of this perspective in the work of the 18th century philosopher Rousseau, who was very anti-society. He thought that individuals were basically born moral and that it was society that corrupted them and brought out the worst in people. If we could all just be and do whatever we felt instinctively, rather than being constrained by societal expectations and rules, things would be good. Society is the problem. Society is the threat to my individuality. Rousseau said, man is born free, yet everywhere he is in chains. But is this the case? If we were left alone in unfettered freedom, would we flourish or would we shrivel? 
I know even as a staunch introvert myself, I know that being left on my own for too long with my thoughts is not good for me. But younger generations today grow up with an inherent distrust of institutions and traditions. They're savvy, they know how to spot a scam, they've got no brand loyalty, they stand in the rubble of fallen idols and fallen institutions, and they're ready to unsubscribe and unfollow anyone that no longer speaks to their desires or who's exposed as a fraud. Young people change jobs, they change looks, they change partners, change cities. They're adaptable and mobile. They live fluid lives and they live in an unstable world. And as such, they highly value expressive individuality. And it seems that it's the worst injustice to not be true to yourself, to what you feel yourself to be. But there's a downside to this. If such a focus is on individual freedom, then sometimes we feel overwhelmed by choice. We feel the pressure of the endless pursuit to be something more all the time and, and people desperately want to belong and to be accepted and affirmed, as we all do. Carl Truman wrote a book called Strange New World and in that he notes that while the traditional institutions of nation and church and family no longer define us, we still seek belonging. We still seek belonging where we look now to new narratives to find affirmation, and these are often found online. And ironically, this way of thinking that prizes expressive individuality has seeped into our collective thinking, and we all look for authentic connection, but we're suspicious, and we esteem our individuality above all things. So what's the answer? What is the answer to this dilemma? Well, for some, the nostalgia of the past, when life felt simpler, when everything was black and white, that's the solution. And they're trying to return to that world. To a time when they felt powerful and they felt in control. But the genie is out of the bottle, isn't it? And it refuses to return. The past glory days have been exposed to be nothing more than a mirage. They weren't perfect back then, and the voices that weren't heard are demanding attention now. So that's one option that people look to. The other option is, do we embrace this new fluidity, where every label is up for grabs and everyone has the right to self-determination? Well, the trouble is that the boundaries keep shifting. The hero of today can be the villain of tomorrow. And the problem is always out there, and we're left to create our own meaning. And why does it feel like we're just letting ourselves off the hook and blame shifting? And why is the ache of loneliness still there? Is it possible to be fully known, both our highlights real and the moments that we'd rather delete, to be fully known and to be fully embraced and loved? Or do we feel that we will be cancelled or called out if we are truly known? And so what has this got to do with the passage? Well, I think that the gospel offers a better way. A better way. In our passage, 
we see how a community embodied by Jesus, filled with his spirit, functions in a way that is both radically non-conforming and self-denying. And it's this combination, this combination of embracing difference but rejecting individualism that brings flourishing. And so today I want to take a look at this new church community formed in Acts chapter 2 and notice what are the signs of new life here? What is it that makes a spirit-formed church? What are the key marks of a spirit-filled church? And there's four things that I want to point out. Firstly, it's a loving community. Sorry, a learning community. It's a loving community, secondly. It is a prayerful community, and it is a missional community. So we're going to go through those four things. A learning community, a loving community, a prayerful community, and a missional community. And we're going to discover that the church was countercultural then, and it's countercultural today. And then I want to ask the question, is this type of community one that leads to flourishing? So that's where we're heading. And before we do that, I'd like to just remind ourselves from last week about how we enter this new community before we tease out the implications. So if you remember from last week, Peter had just finished his speech to the crowds about Jesus as the promised Messiah. And then picking it up in verse 37, we read... When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The way of entry into this community is staggeringly countercultural. It is the death of individualism. We're called to repent. To repent means to radically reorient your life. It's a sense of coming to God open-handed, admitting that we are the source of the problem and that he is the solution. The people who heard Peter speak say, what shall we do? But repentance is more admitting that we can't do anything, but that God has done it himself. That is the only criteria for entry into this new community. And in verse 39, we read that God is calling all people to come. And upon coming, he offers us two gifts, forgiveness of our sins and the Holy Spirit. You know, when my kids were little and Mother's Day was coming up, they would want to give me a gift for Mother's Day. But of course, they didn't have any money. So I gave them money for the school for. (laughs) They would go to the school store. They would buy something with the money that I gave them. And then they would give it back to me. (laughs) You can see where I'm going with this. God provides the gift that we can't afford to give. He provides what his holiness demands from us and that we as bankrupt can never afford. 
And so as we enter God's new community, the way that we enter that provides the framework for how we live as God's new community today. You see, God gave up everything for us, and so we can't help but respond in kind. And so we see verse 42. It says that they were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You see, you can't be half-hearted when God has so extravagantly and generously acted towards you. His devotion towards us compels us to be devoted to him. And so instead of our lives revolving around our own interests, they now revolve around God, and his spirit has changed our will and our desires to better reflect his own. And so we'll look at what the markers of this new church are that God has brought us into. The first being a learning community. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That is, to the hearing, hearing the eyewitness accounts of the life and work of the Lord Jesus and discussing it and digesting its meaning and thinking hard about the implications. You know, I think that we sometimes pit the spirit against the word as though somehow being spirit-filled means to be anti-word. But it couldn't be further from the truth. It's as the apostles are filled with the spirit that they preach. And in Peter's letter, he writes that the Old Testament prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, search intently and with the greatest of care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. God's word is inspired by the spirit. And to be spirit-filled means to be devoted to devouring God's word. To be an apostolic church that is reliant and sits under the apostles' teaching. We are to be a learning community. Secondly, we are to be a loving community. A loving community. A community that is devoted to fellowship. And fellowship isn't morning tea after church. Fellowship is much more expansive and weightier than that. Fellowship is, means being committed to sharing something, to having the same goal that we're working towards. And that means for us that we need to be vulnerable and open. We don't just come to church to consume, we come to give. We share our lives together. We share our homes and our time and our money and our possessions. Being devoted to fellowship means not waiting for someone to act first or someone to initiate things, and it means not holding grudges and not being stingy. And we see this in practice in the passage. So in verse 44, we read this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. We're told three times that they were together in those verses and that they had everything in common. The idea of a solo Christian or a Christian who is not part of a church is an antithesis to what it truly means to be a Christian. 
It is the opposite to what it means to be a Christian. When we accept Christ, we become part of his body. And that's not to say that it's always easy to come to church. When I know this, there may be seasons in life where it might be particularly hard to turn up. And we might want to hide, or we might feel that there's no point in even coming. We might fear losing face if we've been away for a long time. But being part of the church means self-denial and dying to individualism and being committed to God's people. Jesus doesn't allow us to say, yes, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church for which he died. We need you and you need us. That's God's design. And we need to remember who these first believers were that they were devoting themselves to fellowship with. We read last week that these were people from every nation under heaven. They would have been from every strata of the society, as John mentioned last week. And the classes then were even more rigid and polarising than nowadays. So we see this paradox These are people who had nothing in common and who are now together and had everything in common. These are people who would not have been allowed to mix and now they're meeting together and they're breaking bread in each other's homes and eating together. I think we can't really appreciate this very much in our multicultural society because we are the beneficiaries of the impact of the church. There's been just a couple of times in my life where I've experienced something akin to suspicion due to my nationality and my gender, and it's been jarring. I remember the first time was when I was invited into my Muslim neighbor's home, back when I was living in Reservoir. And I was ushered into the back room where the wife and the children were, and the men met separately, and the husband wouldn't look me in the eyes. And as soon as the men were away, my neighbour took off her burqa, and, but it went right back on when we returned in. And there was another time when I was living in Caulfield and I was seeing a, a Jewish physio and every appointment that we had, we'd get into these great conversations about faith and he'd be sharing scriptures with me and I'd be sharing articles back and, and my questions often stumped him so he'd go and see his rabbi during the week and then when I'd come back, he'd, he'd kind of give me an answer. Um, And one day he invited me to his house to to meet his rabbi to discuss Christianity and Judaism. And the mood totally shifted from being jovial and warm to suddenly quite icy. Um, My husband at the time, who was Jewish by birth, he was greeted, but no handshake was offered to me as a Gentile woman. We went and sat at the table and I noticed that there were disposable cups on the table and everything was sealed so that I didn't touch anything and contaminate anything. And it was a stark reminder that I was objectionable and not kosher. But what we see in Acts chapter 2 is the removal of all those barriers, that table fellowship is extended to all. And so for us, I wonder if In our situation, we might be quite comfortable with ethnic diversity or multi-generational diversity. But what about economic diversity or 
educational or political diversity? What are the unspoken boundaries that we create that do not reflect the gospel? If we're part of the majority culture of this church, we may be blind to the ways that we covertly exclude and sideline people who are unlike us. My kids ask me, do we have an accent? And they, are, they can't believe that we do have an accent, which we all do, of course, and I say yes. And I think it's like this, that we can be impervious to the unconscious biases that we may have. And so I want to ask you, do you have people who have different politics to you whom you can talk to as brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have people who don't share your educational background or who are just different personalities to you? People who you wouldn't get along with but for the gospel. The gospel is what makes us a community. The gospel is what makes us a community. This is why the church can look different all over the world because it's not linked to a culture. It's transcultural. It's not about our upbringing or our similarities that define us. It's Christ. Christ, who in the words of Paul, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. That's why the church was so generous and sacrificial. Not because it was commanded by God or having private property was forbidden, no, but because God has lavished us with his great love. He has withheld nothing from us. He has loved us so much that he gave his one and only son. So how could we not show love and generosity to others when we've experienced such riches ourselves? How could we not? Jesus says this in John chapter 13, verse 34, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We are a loving community. Thirdly, a spirit-filled church is a prayerful community. We see this all the way through the book of Acts, that the church is a community devoted to prayer. It is their lifeblood. They prayed before making a decision. They prayed in times of crisis. They prayed for healing. They prayed for boldness. They were a people devoted to praying together. Prayer is mentioned more through the book of Acts than through any other New Testament book. And prayer like this was modelled after Jesus. He regularly prayed to the Father and he set an example for the disciples. And through the book of Acts, we see that prayer often precedes God's powerful work again and again. In our society, we can be dulled to the work of the Spirit and the need for prayer. We pray small prayers. We often don't even believe that prayer makes much of a difference. Prayer is slow and it's time-consuming and it doesn't feel productive. And yet... This is how God chooses to work. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Until we see how helpless we are and how much we need God, we won't be devoted to prayer. 
Prayer is feisty. It doesn't take no for an answer. Uh, this week I read the story of Jeremiah Lampfire, who was a minister in a small struggling church in Manhattan in 1857. He was overwhelmed and he cried out to God, God, what should I do? And so the next day he started a lunchtime prayer meeting which he advertised at his church. And he sat there and waited and nobody came. And so he started praying and after 20 minutes he kept on praying. By the end of the hour, six people had joined him. And then he returned again the next week and he prayed. And 20 people came. And then he kept on praying. And the next week there was 30. And then soon the church was packed out. Business people were flooding in every lunchtime to pray. And after six months, 50,000 people met daily to pray in Manhattan. And they saw the miraculous answers to prayer happening every day. Prayer is the mark of the church because we recognise that we have no power to change ourselves or to change anyone else. It's only by God's power that such change can come. And so we come to him as we are, needy, distracted, weary, uncertain. We come to him and we watch as he answers and as he, as he acts. We are a praying community. And finally, we are a missional community. This burgeoning new community is designed to expand. New life brings new life. I love my houseplants. I've got quite a few. I've got a few different types. And I've got friends that, that give them to me because they know that I love plants. And a healthy plant will stretch out its roots and it will have new leaves forming. But if it's stuck in a pot that it's too small for, a plant doesn't thrive. Plants need to keep growing. And so does the church. The church needs to keep growing. We read in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus' plan for the church was to keep growing and expanding to the ends of the earth. The church is not a club existing for the members within it. It is vital and organic. It is a spirit-filled fellowship that is propelled outwards by God. And we see here that God transformed these new Christians and that everything changed. Their confidence is not in themselves. They're free to be vulnerable. They're free to give up things, to give up gains for the sake of others. This is the better way. To be fully known and fully loved frees us to know and to love others. This is what authentic, good community looks like. And those that think that Christians should keep their views to themselves, they don't understand the idea that that is so incompatible with being a Christian. It's not out of pride or, or hate or disdain that we share about Jesus. It's out of love. And we see this in new Christians, don't we? They may not be particularly eloquent. They, they may not have thoughtful answers. But what they do have is an encounter with Jesus that is so profound that they have to talk about it. 
You see it in their bodies. They have to get it out. And I wonder, have we encountered Jesus and his beauty so powerfully that we can't help but be compelled to talk about him every chance that we get? An authentic, spirit-filled Christian is one who wants others to know Jesus too. And as we live out the gospel in our everyday lives, people see Jesus embodied in our community. And people are often attracted to the Christian community and the life of Jesus before they're attracted to his message. In my previous church, we met in a school which was in the heartland of progressive secularism. And we tried for years to build a relationship with the school community. And for a long time, they didn't want us meeting there. Um, I think it was the extra finances that eventually won them over. But when it was time for us to leave, um, to finish up the church there, um, I went into the office and I handed back the keys to, to Mary, who was this sceptical, kind of tough-as-nails office manager. And I was taken aback because she started crying. She, literally, she was literally crying. She was so sad that our church was leaving. And I could only contribute her response to the fact that she must have seen something of Jesus embodied in the life of our church for such a change to take place. I read this piece in the New York Times by Tish Harrison Warren this, this week, speaking about Tim Keller. And this, for me, sums up what an Acts 2 Christian is. She said this, Tim wasn't kind, gentle, and loving to others as some sort of strategy to win the culture wars, grow his church, or achieve a particular result. Tim loved his neighbours, even across deep differences, simply because he was a man who had been transformed by the grace of Jesus. He didn't put on kindness as some sort of COVID strategy he genuinely loved his neighbours because Jesus' love for him had transformed Tim. This is what the Spirit does. He takes ordinary people and he builds a life-giving community that not only changes the people within the community but those around it. So is this type of community one that leads to flourishing? Well, we may look in all sorts of places, but I'm convinced that you will not find communities like this anywhere else. You will not find life anywhere outside of Jesus. And so if you're looking in today, I say, come, join us. This is the solution of the cravings of the human heart that Truman pointed out in his book. And he suggests that the church... Uh, today should, instead of lamenting the marginalisation that's happening, we should instead focus on doing what they did back in Acts 2 and what we do today, gathering together on the Lord's Day, praying, singing God's praise, hearing God's word read and preached, celebrating baptism and the Lord's Supper, giving material, materially to the church's work, these are things all Christians should do when we are gathered together. It might sound trite, he said, 
but a large part of the church's witness to the world is simply being the church in worship. Brothers and sisters, we are to embody Jesus so that this neighbourhood can know Jesus. We're filled with the spirit of Jesus as we continue to learn from him and unite in partnership together for him and live loving, sacrificial lives in response to Jesus and pray because we're united to him. And Jesus continues his mission to bring life to the ends of the earth. And so I want to say that this is happening. This is happening here. And the more that we pursue God and are devoted in our, to living our lives in response to this salvation, the more our community will be filled with and reflect the spirit of Jesus. Jesus continues his life-giving, transformative work through us here today. Jesus is here in our midst 